0: I'm Kirwan Ray, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes an eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to
1: help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome back to Win the Day. The quote for today's episode is an absolute classic from Yoda Do or do not, there is no try do or do not, there is no try. In this episode, I'll be chatting with a good mate and one of the world's foremost business growth experts, Kerwin Ray. You might already know Kerwin, there's a good chance you do if you're from Australia, and he's amassed millions of followers online with his raw, no-nonsense, motivational style. In an extraordinary career, he's helped more than 100,000 businesses in 150 different industries in more than a dozen countries to achieve better results. He's also host of Unstoppable with Kerwin Ray podcast. But Kerwin certainly had to attend the school of hard knocks to get to where he is today. At seven years old, he was diagnosed with dyslexia, ADHD, and other learning difficulties. At 15, he had the first of seven near-death experiences, and at 19, he became addicted to drugs. It looked like the stars simply wouldn't align for his life, and he hadn't even read a book in full until he was 23, which is coincidentally the same year he started his first business. Then a series of transformational moments occurred that made Kerwin realize he had far more potential than he ever thought possible. At that point, he realized that his roller coaster journey, through difficult lessons and significant hardships, had actually equipped him with an unparalleled ability to help others succeed. And he's been kicking massive goals ever since. Incredibly, he was one of the few people on the entire planet to properly foresee how dramatically things were going to change as a result of COVID, and he pivoted his business accordingly. In this interview, Kerwin and I talk about the most transformational moments that took him from believing he was stupid to feeling superhuman, the exact methods he uses to improve his own performance each day, how he read the tea leaves for the pandemic and was able to use it to his advantage, the parenting style he has with his six-year-old son, Noah, how to balance hunger for future achievements with happiness in the present, and a whole lot more. You'll certainly be ready to win the day after this episode. Let's get into it. And great to see you again, mate. Welcome to win the day.
0: <laughs> thanks, James. It's good to be back.
1: <laughs> well, you know and for your amazing energy and larger than life presence, whether it's on stage in the office like we were just talking about or on the on the virtual streams that we're doing in this new world we're in, who were you before the bulletproof Kerwin Ray that we that we see today?
0: Uh, probably the Swiss cheese version of Kerwin Ray because uh, filled full of holes. Uh, I wouldn't say yeah, I'm bulletproof, but um, I'd certainly say that yeah, I, I've always had this A certain aspect of my personality is quite persistent. Uh, and I think that's played out through my life in a, in a number of different ways. But um, yeah, look, it's hard to say. Like if you can give that question some context, because I've, like anyone, mate, you know, we've all been through so many different experiences in life. And I can honestly say I've probably lived, you know, four or five different lives in, in the lifetime that I've had right now. So it's like asking me who was I before this version or who was I before the version before that? Um, but I guess you could say I've, I've always been a version of someone that's, um, yeah, really enjoyed helping people. You know, I'm someone that natively likes to help. Uh, I'm someone that natively likes to support. I, uh, it's just something I do um, instinctively. And yeah, I think that's played out in a range of different ways. It's been able to support me and many other people in the process
1: sure well it's interesting the question that I've got here I think will provide a bit of a, a bit of an insight into that because you and I we're, we're acutely aware of the power of the mind it's what we do with our you know with our work Absolutely. and we, we both love helping people and we know that just as we can think and grow rich we can also think and grow poor and what I was wondering when you were diagnosed at the age of seven with things like ADHD and told that you had learning difficulties and dyslexia and all these different things how did those labels shape your younger years and how do you feel about putting labels, good or bad, on children these days?
0: Yeah, look, I think at the time, I don't think I, I gave much credence to the labels. It was more the description and how I was treated as a result. You know, um, I didn't really understand at the time ADHD and dyslexia. I just knew that I found it really difficult to learn at school. You know, I found it very difficult to concentrate and... Um, you know, the teachers often made a point of making it known that I was different to everyone else in that capacity. So for me, I, I guess you could say, um, you know, there was a suggestion that was given to me at a very early age. I can't remember that I was stupid by someone in my uh, in my immediate family. And I guess you could say in many respects, I, I, I grabbed onto that that label of, of being stupid. And then I started to manifest that in a whole range of different ways. And, you know, I'm sure one of those ways was, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, but just, ultimately the experience of yeah, really struggling
1: in the learning in the learning space. Yeah. Can you can you take us into that moment from when you shifted your mindset away from that mindset of of, of being stupid or having the illusion of being stupid to feeling like you had power, that, that moment for the first time that your destiny was potentially much brighter than than the story that you have been told till that point.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I actually remember where I was. I was actually in um, Brisbane in Carindale. Uh, I was managing a uh, uh, at a fitness equipment store at the time and I was reading a book called um, Thinking, not Thinking Grow Rich, sorry. Uh, gosh, what's it called? Uh, Dr. David Schwartz. Um, it's a classic. Magic oh, of Thinking believe. Big, is it? Or The Power of... The Magic of Thinking magic Big. Magic of Thinking that's of it? Big, yeah, yeah. The, mag- the Magic of Thinking Big. And I remember reading that book <clears throat> because it was given to me by someone that I knew. Um, And I read that book and I read it feverishly. And I never read anything feverishly because I always struggled to read. Like, and I never even read the newspaper up until this point. I didn't read anything. You know, I think up until that point, I hadn't even read um, a book cover to cover. And then I found this book and I started reading it. And I was kind of attuned into the possibility that maybe I was, there was more potential out there, you know, slightly attuned to the possibility of some form of growth and personal development. And I read this book, and I remember getting to the end of it because I read it over a period of about three days, which was, first of all, it was the first time I'd read a book cover to cover. So it was, it was a feat. And it was actually a significant feat in my life because I you know something I struggled with. Uh, but then I remember getting to the end of the book and looking at the back cover and going, huh, I actually fucking remember what's inside. And then thinking to myself, literally thinking to myself, maybe I'm not stupid after all. I remember thinking that exact thought. Uh, And then from there, I just made it a practice to start reading things I was interested in. I even started buying newspapers, not because I was interested in the news, but I'd flick through the newspapers until I'd find a headline that took my attention and then I'd start reading, and uh, to me that was just a form of
1: practice. Interesting catalyst. You know, I, I actually grew up in Carindale for the first fifteen years of my life. There you go. dad? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. We lived there in the middle of nowhere before all the residential developments and things came out there. We had ten acres, and there was no. We had a, a neighboring house, and no one else around for about a ten minute yeah, drive. Wow. So one of my uh, greatest athletic feats was at about the age of twelve, trying to get to the corner store that was about a five k uh, bike ride away. So it's uh, interesting how how all. That worked, oh, wow. and uh, I guess those those things that you go through help you in your career that you've got now, right? Where you can go and help a bunch of people because it sounds like what you were talking about there. It was one of those big when the when the student is ready, the master will appear. I mean, you always had this. This ability, But it was only once you were able to, to have this resource that was able to change uh, the, traje- the trajectory. And I know, you know, we've each had a lot of sliding door moments to that point. But um, yeah. is that a big part of the work that you do today to try and help other people to help facilitate those sliding door moments to change their trajectory?
0: Yeah, look. I think I've come from a place which I think is, um, and and again, everyone's got their own story. And I'm not trying to put myself above or below anyone. But what I do know is I've, you know, I've come from a, a pretty interesting background where I've had, you know, uh, a vast and wide range of experiences that could be labelled as severe traumas. And as a result, that created a whole bunch of, you know, situations and contexts and feelings within me. You know, some of those given labels um, and diagnoses that just required a disproportionate amount of work. And so with the person I am today, I've, I've seen the amount of work that I've had to do to get here and it hasn't been an easy journey by any stretch of the imagination, but it's given me a real solid set of tools because I'm one of these people that I'm relentless, but I'm relentless from the perspective of sustainability. I don't just want to learn how to do something once. I want to learn how to do something over and over and over again. And so for me, you know, through this process of, of learning how to develop and grow myself, I feel very grateful that I've you know, birthed some incredible tools that are, are incredibly powerful that when I sit down with anyone and I can look at anyone, James, you know, and it's hard to look at anyone you know, in, as, 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 as anything other than what they are, which is an individual with their own experiences. But knowing where I've come from, I haven't met anyone to this day that I can't look at them and go, nah, there's still hope for you mm. because there is. And that's the beautiful thing about being human Is we all have this capability to, to grow. You know, we all have this capability to, to, to change and transform but it's just getting people to that point where they can see that. It's
1: interesting that so many people out there um, feel like they don't have a good story Yeah, You know, there are people like whether, whether it's Brandon Bashard who talks about his car accident story or Janine Shepard who, you know, is a good mutual friend of ours who was literally hit by a truck. A lot of people out there feel like, hey, I'm not good enough because I don't have a, a big enough yeah. story.
0: And I wasn't hit by a truck. I haven't <laughs> been stabbed. I haven't been shot at. You know, I haven't had 70 death experiences. Yeah. A lot of people do feel that way. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I think there's a huge market that you're serving of people who are the middle of the road, who, who may not have come from enormous hardship. That being said, I, I feel like everyone who has reached the age of 30 has overcome significant adversity and hardship in, in one way or another. And with your, you know, you've had a bunch of near-death experiences, you've had business challenges, you've had personal challenges. Was there one of those challenges in particular? What, what was the most significant one of those challenges where you were able to identify an equivalent benefit or advantage from?
0: Look, I think probably one of the biggest challenges I've ever had to, I've had to go through in recent times was probably the separation from my wife about three and a half years ago. And that was mainly because of, you know, I, had, I grew up in, in a single parent household and I had these dreams and these ambitions of creating, you know, a family-like environment, you know, in my own house. And when that came and when that when when that didn't come to fruition, you know, I feel very grateful. My ex-wife Kristen is an incredible human being, and you know, we've we've separated incredibly consciously. Um, but at the time, I was having this massive ideal shattered. This ideal of you know, um, you know, a mum and a dad and a and a family that you know we're going to have these big Christmases and these lives together. And so when that started to come you know, come undone from the perspective of the ideal, yeah, it required an enormous amount of work for me to balance the perspective and go, okay, well, where's the benefit in this? How's this serving me? Mm-hmm. You know, especially considering, a, you know, a significant body of my work is around relationship dynamics, you know, and I'm now going through my own relationship mm-hmm. breakdown myself. Um, so for me, it was, it was beautiful and I'm so grateful. And I'm, but I'm one of these people that whenever I experience challenge, I just embrace it really strongly. I love challenge, you know, I love doing things that are hard. And when, when we went through that period, it was very difficult, but it was very easy to see the benefits when, you, when you're looking for them. You know, one of the most incredible benefits that, that I received was all of a sudden I became a full-time dad, you know, 50% of the time instead of a part-time dad, 100% of the time. And that was absolutely transformational for me. And that changed my life in every single way, shape and form to the point where I look at that one aspect and go, it's in balance. You know, I'm, I'm good. Uh, it's all good. I've got nothing to, to regret and everything to be grateful for.
1: Absolutely. What, what, what has happened in your life? What what uh, have you done that's enabled you to stay so calm in all the, you know, I guess the world that we're in right now. it's, uh, it's ex- <laughs> a, a, dispar- a, disproportionate,
0: a disproportionate amount of fucking meditation and all sorts of other gizmos and gimmicks. But you've also got to understand my origins, mate. And yeah. This is also, you know, a label that I, I, I was SP, undiagnosed SPD. Uh, and what that means is, you know, I've, I've got family that are on the spectrum. I'm on the spectrum myself. Um, and SPD means I have a sensory processing disorder. And it's not really a disorder it's more like an upgrade all of my senses are all heightened so my sense of you know smell taste touch everything is turned up now everyone might go oh that's amazing but it's not amazing when you give that to a child that is evolving in an environment that is quite noisy you know and frenetic that hasn't been demonstrated nor is demonstrated how to regulate you know in a healthy and functional way mm. and so for me I I didn't know anything other than growing up feeling stressed like because I was constantly under the bombardment of amplified information, whether at a sound site, you know, going into a shopping center was like, you know, for, for me, it was a very different experience to most other kids. And so as a result, I've had to learn how to, uh, you know, literally, I, I kind of came to this conclusion, I think it was only a few months ago that I've literally gone through almost every system in my body, learning how to regulate it consciously, just to try and feel normal, but in the process, I've developed an incredible set of tools that we yeah you know, that are being used by military, by uh by business, by mums, by dads, by you know, kids who are going for exams to be able to regulate stress. Uh, and stay calm and cool. And so for me, you know, you look at me and go, man, how, how is it that you're so calm? Because I spent decades as a very wound up fucking anxious little child that didn't want to be that way, for real, you know. And um, I used to look at everyone around me as a kid and go, why does everyone look so fucking relaxed? I feel like I'm wound up like a spring here. Um, and so, yeah, for me, the pursuit of calm, and even to give you context, you know, there's only two base fears that we have, which is fear, uh, the fear of falling in loud noises. And so for me, I went straight for those two. You know, I did 200. Once I identified, I had a fear of heights. I did 200 skydives in 12 months, you know, and I did at least 60 skydives in a very short concession where I, succession where I threw a heart rate monitor around myself and I was meditating in free fall with the pursuit of getting under 80 beats per minute and maintaining that. And now that's, that's not normal by any stretch of the imagination, but you've got to understand if you can learn to meditate in free fall, you know, flying at 200 and something, 24 Ks an hour towards the ground, you can fucking meditate anywhere, you know, one of the reasons I, I pursued training with, uh, with weapons and special forces, and I'm very lucky to have trained with, you know, some, of the Navy, some Navy SEALs. I've trained with European special forces. But when I do this training, people go, oh, that must be mad, you know, running and jumping and, you know, climbing through mud. I'm like, no, dude, I don't get my hands fucking dirty on the mud. I play with the guns. And the reason I like to play with the guns is because you have to, you know, you're working in an environment that has a very loud percussion that activates the autonomic nervous system instantaneously if you don't know how to regulate. And if you have to execute a series of 73 moves in the next three minutes and you're activated, and you can't do that, you're fucked. But by virtue of exposing yourself to consistently to those stresses, falling out of the sky, loud noises whilst having to perform complex sequences that could potentially get someone yourself killed, you know, it forces you into a zone where you have to become very clear uh, when you have to be. And But more importantly, you understand the value of calm because I think one of the reasons that people don't, aren't calms, I don't see the value of it. And when you are calm and you have this massive objectivity to be able to make multiple decisions at any one time that most people can't make because, you know, they're stressed uh, and they're activated. It's uh, there's a lot of value in calm once you start playing in that space.
1: It- for sure. It's interesting that uh, I had someone on recently who's Emily Fletcher, who has got Ziva meditation. I'm not sure if you know Emily, but part of my research for that, it was, I discovered that more than 80% of doctors' visits are related to stress. Yet the people who feel that stress, but they're not taking the steps to really improve themselves on the daily and getting out of your comfort zone. I mean, I think for most people, jumping out of a, an airplane is is probably stressful enough for them. But when you're taking that to another level of constant growth around, what can I do at, to push the boundary at the at the furthest point, which is the meditation thing. I mean, incredible. And the business leaders that you work with, you work with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all around the world, all the different businesses and, and things that you've been able to help grow and transform. Is stress an underlying factor for all those people? Maybe they're, they're too busy working in their business rather than, than on the business. How much of a factor is stress and, and what role do you think meditation or, or some type of other um, tips that you've got to help them get through that?
0: Look, I would say it's a massive factor. And that's one of the reasons I think that we are so sex- successful in what we do. You know, we when we work with business owners, the clients that we work with over a long period of time, there's about one in three or one in four that will 2x to 10x in their first 18 months to two years. And, you know, we teach very solid business, you know, marketing and leadership and scaling principles, yes. But the one thing that makes us different that really sets us apart is the psychological conditioning component that we teach. And a big part of that is learning how to deal with stress because here's what we know about stress. Stress is the number one killer of the 21st century. And you know, that's a multi, multi-billion dollar issue in the workforce. But what we also know about stress is when we have stress activated in the body, you know, our autonomic nervous system is activated. We go into fight or flight. You know, adrenaline cortisol start flooding the system and we lose with it lose within seven minutes about 50% of our intelligence. So when stress goes up, intelligence goes down. And so to me, it's a valuable question to ask, okay, what are, the, what are the situations that I'm in most that have the highest level of value that require the greatest level of calm that if I'm stressed in those situations can cause me you know, significant consequence? And that is in your job, in your business, in your relationship, you know, in those moments that really count. And so for me, there's, no, there's an absolute clear correlation that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're just going to be alive, you're going to experience a level of stress. But if you're going to be an entrepreneur and stress is a spectrum, right, you are going to significantly start to push yourself up that spectrum of, of experiencing stress. And the more able you are to regulate stress in a healthy way at levels that other people can't will enable you to go further than anyone else can. Because the only difference between you know someone who plays here and someone who someone who plays here and someone who plays here is not necessarily their smarts. It's their ability to expose themselves to information, in some cases, stress at a level that they can regulate in a healthy way. That's why not everyone's going to be able to build a multi-billion dollar company because not everyone could you know, cope with the mental stress of even considering working with those denominations and those values. And that's why you'll always find where your limit is and wherever that limit is, will be, you know, you'll be constrained by some level of fear that triggers level of stress. The more we can interpersonally learn how to regulate the systems within our body consciously based on the recognition of, you know, of that being required, then the further we can go.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon founder and CEO, he's talking about, he said in one of his letters to the shareholders, I've made billions of failures at Amazon, literally, like actively seeking out the wealthiest person who ever lived, actively seeking out ways that he can get out of his comfort zone because he knows that the more he can expose himself to those environments, the more comfortable they are, the more sensory yeah. awareness they have around being able to bring something to market that might resonate rather than, your, you know, you Traditional bureaucracy that moves very very slowly. Um, I guess things like banks and, and other government um, practices, I, I think would be would be in that regard. Uh, and I heard you recently talk about career transitions. I mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you had a two-year break. I think it was around the age of 33 when you were between business ventures and you were trying to figure out your next move and eventually you stumbled across or maybe not maybe not stumbled so much. Eventually, you reached that point of the business that you're in now. How, how were you mm. able to take that time and what did you do that enabled you to find that business and that path that you love?
0: Yeah, look, I, I did at the age of 32 or 33 what I probably should have done at 18, 19. I, just took, a t- I took some time off because I went straight out of school. Like I was working four jobs in school from year 10 or year 8. From the moment I could work, I was working multiple jobs. And so I never took any time off. And at the age of 32, <clears throat> I just got out of a venture. I had some money in my pocket and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take some time off. And I did. And I took some time off uh, living on the northern beaches of, uh, of Sydney. And um, yeah, I just took enough time and i think this is a critical uh, i think this is something that everyone should be open to i took the time to get bored mm. and the reason i think that's important is because it's not until we get bored that we get really curious and you know my life in you know as i said i've lived many different iterations of my life but my life is very full and very rarely does it ever get boring but this is one stage of my life that i got to where, you know, I'd done and basically done everything I wanted to do from a, from a financial perspective. And I was like, well, maybe I want to retire now. I took that time out. And then I started looking at who was I surrounding myself with in that phase, you know, and I was playing you know, sometimes golf a couple times a week with seventy-four-year-old men who <laughs> would sometimes accidentally piss their pants when they hit a good drive, and that to me wasn't—I wasn't looking at my my, my proximity circle and go, "Fuck, these guys are inspiring me to stay retired." I'm like, "Fuck, what have I done?" Like, I'm like, "What got, have I done?" You got to piss your pants on your
1: drive just to fit
0: in. Oh, and you know, and I'm pretty sure a couple of even you know followed through, but um. <laughs> But for me, I had to get to the point where I was so bored where I was like, right, I've got to do something. I'm, I'm going out of my fucking mind here. I've got to do something, but I don't need to. Well, let's put yourself in a situation where you have to. And after two years, I got to the point where I'd spent all my liquid capital. And, I, and if I wanted to keep living, I had to start um, you know, selling assets. And I was just like, yeah, no, nah, fuck that. And that's when I was like, right. I sat down on the beach, and Beach, in the northern beaches of, of, of Sydney with a, with a notepad. And my cat... I had a have a Bengal, and he's like a little leopard that thinks he's a dog. And I just started writing down what do I love to do, and I kept coming back to teaching. I love teaching. I love speaking, but I was quite of jaded because when I'd come out of the industry two years previous, and I'd worked in a range of different businesses, and I'd seen quite a different. Like you probably yourself, mate. I'd been exposed to both sides of the the seminar industry, and I was just like, you know, I had no interest in coming back to the seminar industry. Um, and then. But when I sat down to identify what do I really love? I love to teach. I love to help. I love to serve. And I was like, well, that where I do that greatest is when I'm speaking. But no, I said I'd never do that again. And it was like, oof. So it was in that moment. And I remember it was uh, an afternoon, a Tuesday afternoon uh, on that beach. It was a little bit overcast. and The waves were pumping. Um, yeah, I made the choice that I was not going to... Nothing. I was not going to take the stage and say anything that I wasn't actually doing. And I gave myself a little bit of a veto. I gave myself a ninety percent, 95% congruency. And that 5% was I can only talk about things that I'm going to do, okay, but I have to do them. So in that context is, for me, don't talk about it unless you're fucking doing it. Mm. You know, don't talk to it unless you've got experience or don't say you're going to do it. And if you say you're going to do it, make it clear. I haven't done this yet, but I'm going to, you know. And so for me, that's a big part of Um, our brand and what we do is just being really, yeah, being quite genuine and authentic to what we do.
1: Yeah. And I think that really comes across in everything you do. And it it reminds me of what you said at a, that we are podcast house sessions event a few months back when you were talking about leadership. It's not a badge, it's a behavior leading by example Mm. and taking that time to explore that intellectual curiosity. I've got to connect you with a friend of mine, Michael Fox, who had a company called Shoes of Prey, a women's, the world's first, yeah, yeah. The women's custom shoe that he lost 25 million US dollars of their investor money. And then he after and 10 years and, and his, his marriage broke up and then he went to Europe with his, his his new partner who's now his wife and the mother of his children and uh, he just took six months to explore his intellectual curiosity and that's what mm. led him to that mission of wanting to end industrial agriculture and now he's created a new business called Fable Food Co that just launched into 600 uh, Woolies stores. They've partnered with Heston and Blumenthal and um, absolutely crushing go. it. Amazing story. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, taking that time to actually get out of, of what you're doing and, and get Bored because there's a people I talk to myself included. When often when you have that time, it's extremely hard. Once you've been an entrepreneur, to stop working to switch off. Mm. And
0: David Deatter, I actually got the idea from David Deatter in one of his books. I think it was The Way of the Superior Man, and he was talking about how oftentimes what men will do is they'll they'll keep themselves distracted, which will prevent them from discovering their purpose when they stumble upon it. Mm. Uh, and that's why he, you know, it was recommended, and I'd recommend this to a lot of people to take extended periods of time just to do nothing, yeah. just to get bored. And we see it with the kids, you know, it's a big part of the Montessori method that we do with my son Noah, our son Noah, um, is you know the importance of getting kids bored because it's when they get
1: bored, their imaginations fire up. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, that's great. What, what about the, you know, from all the businesses and, and individuals that you've worked with and, and been able to, to change the lives and trajectory of, is there one transformation in particular that you're most proud of or that stands out? Yeah, yeah, there is actually. <laughs> Probably my, I know this is going to sound so arrogant, but my own. <laughs> I feel like
0: it's a P. I feel like it's a P I'd like to thank me. <laughs> i like to thank my, my grit. Um, ah, look, it's a hard Look, I don't know anyone as well as I know myself, so that's the that's an honest answer if I'm really honest, because I've seen where I've come from to where I've gone through, and it's uh it's been a phenomenal transformation. Um, but if there's if there's one other transformation, oh god, yeah, that's uh that's a good question. Actually, yeah, uh, I'd probably say if there's one that really stands out in my mind right now, it's Matthias, uh, Matthias, my uh, my filmmaker. He is. Like when he came to me, I still remember his interview. He was like his his hair was shaking in the in the in the Skype interview in the background, and um, yeah, he was very meek and very mild and very mousy. And yeah, the transformation now he's he's now gosh four or five years later, he's now probably one of the strongest leaders in our organisation. Um, and he's got a real hat on his shoulders, and you know where he's come from, he's got his own story. Um, you know, where he where he grew up and losing his mum at an early age and, um, you know, his father was a man of service uh, in the community and, you know, he was exposed to a lot of stuff and so, you know, the more I got to know him, the more I saw where he was from his journey and to see where he's come from there and the, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, when you're working with a filmmaker especially Matthias, he's with me all the time mm. so you can't help but get to know him and, and, and rub, rub up against each other and find out more and more and more and, um, yeah, he's really, he's Probably one of the most phenomenal transformations I've ever seen. Yeah, I love
1: it. Well, you mentioned before you mentioned your 6 or Noah's six, isn't he your son Noah?
0: Six and a half. Yeah, six and
1: a half. Yeah, awesome. What What do you do differently as a parent compared to what you how you see other people raise their kids? Oh fuck, I don't know. I don't look at what other people do <laughs> with their kids unless it's in a uh, unless it's in the line
0: at Woolies or something. I was say shopping centres. Um, yeah. But look, I'm like most other dads. You know, I raise my voice. Uh, every now and then, but but the difference is, and this is probably the key difference, is when I do, I apologise straight away, you know, because I'm human, and if I get a little bit of edge to me, and I and I and I lash out, I'll often say, "Buddy, I'm sorry for sorry for raising my voice, but I'm not sorry for what I said, but I shouldn't have raised my voice, but we we shouldn't have done this, or, or whatever the issue is, and, and and bring it to him that way. So he's he sees me um, own my shit on the regular, like he really does see me own my shit on the regular, which is something I'm I hold very near and dear. But we also spend a lot of time together, you know, and I I'm a, I wouldn't say I'm antisocial, but I'm not a massive social person. And, you know, one of the things I realized that up until beginning in a new relationship about four, five, six months ago now, um, outside of work, 98% of my socialization with my, was with my son Noah. And so I guess what that means is we spend a lot of time together. We, we hang out a lot. And the things that we do when we hang out, you know, we're either playing cards, but one of the things we do on a very regular basis is we'll just hang out on a beanbag, you know, hugging and just talking. And we'll sometimes talk for hours. And um, I talk to him like he's a, a real human being. And you know, I, I talk to him with a, an enormous level and I treat him with an enormous level of respect. Uh, I treat him as a, as a human being, um, as an age-appropriate human being, but that comes with a you know, an incredible level of respect for the potential that he holds.
1: Sure. It's interesting at so many parents I see are quick, t- and obviously it's up to everyone to parent their own kids however they want, and however they see fit based on their own experience. So many people are quick to dictate to children how the world is. And I just yeah. love asking children questions and just letting them go or just listening to their observations. I think that's, that's fantastic. What, what is your biggest fear that you have for Noah as he gets older and how are you equipping him to handle that?
0: Uh, I wouldn't say I have any big fears outside of you know losing the little guy that would mm. that would absolutely destroy me. But um, I, I guess the things that I'm equipping him for is I'm I'm equipping him for uh, a very strong mental game. Mm. You know, he he gets probably the some of the world's world's greatest coaching in some of the most <laughs> important situations of his life. He really does. Um, you know, and I look at him as like myself as, as probably one of the greatest clients I'm ever going to have, and I don't mean that in a commercial way. I just mean that in a level of in a, in a way of service. Um, but I'm just equipping him with a very strong, a very strong mental game, with a really strong focus on leadership and teamwork. Mm-hmm like uh, a disproportionate amount of our communication is around working as a team, working together, helping each other, being of service, helping people, you know, and, um and that kind of plays out in, in, in every, in every context. And so, you know, someone actually said to me the other day, um, how do you know you're successful? And I was like, okay, that's a fucking good question, but let me answer it in a really honest one." I said, I look at my son and I look at how he behaves in, in public. And it's not to say that every now and then he's not a bit of a, a cheeky monkey like other kids can be, he can be. But I look at the way that he treats a stranger. I look at the way that he treats the waitress. I look at the way that he treats, you know, someone busking on the street. And he's the most polite, gentle, kind, loving human being I've ever fucking met in my life. And so that to me is like success. Now just got to hold the standard for another 15 years (laughs) to get him him well on his way. Um, But that's important to me. And it's, you know, and I think that's uh, a big part of why I do what I do. Yeah. But I do an enormous, a disproportionate level of socialization with my son.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's important, isn't it? Just having that um, at FaceTime and um, <laughs> yeah. Have you got any anything that you focus on in particular around... Uh, Things that you can do to make sure that you're entirely present with him. Do you ever switch your phone to airplane mode or, or leave it in a different room or carve out? Um, look,
0: hours? he he he's really good. That if he's getting if he's getting jacked off with the phone, he'll just give it to me straight. And so you know, and we have a bit of a deal that you know, um, if Daddy's distracted, he'll put the phone down. But also, if he has to get an important call, he can take it. Um, but this is one of the things that I do with my son that is maybe a little bit different as well. Yes, I give him an, an enormous level of presence, <clears throat> but I actually include him in a lot of my business. You know, he sits in um, on a range of different meetings. He's been in on planning meetings. He's been on, you know, on sales calls. He's been on consulting calls. He's been on, on client meetings. You know, if he's around, he's welcome to come into the meeting. He's just, And he knows he's just got to be quiet. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's something that I... I enjoy exposing you to as well.
1: Yeah, it's interesting with a 15-month-old daughter, I am astounded at how much she actually remembers and picks up. But I can't imagine, you know, a six-and-a-half-year-old listening in and, and being present and participating in those or at least observing those business meetings is going to learn so much more than, uh, you know, than what, it, what other people might actually think.
0: And it's hilarious because, you know, to see him in a meeting, and if I'm giving someone, uh, I, I remember I was in a meeting, this is early in February, and this is, I think, actually still in the office. and I was giving someone some coaching, some feedback. And um, Noah looked over at them, put his hand on their leg, and said, Don't worry, it's just because you're new. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, no, that's right. He turned to me, he goes, dad, 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 be, that's right. He turned to me and he goes, dad, just be nice to them. They're new. And I was just <laughs> like, oh my God, this is hilarious. So um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a pretty funny character. And that's, and that's why I say, like I look at him and how he behaves and him sitting in on these meetings and being involved in these meetings, like you say, they hear everything. Uh, and they echo it, and um, yeah, I would be surprised if he's running the company in the next six years.
1: There's a poem that John Wooden used to have up on his uh, in his in his office, and it was called "A Little Fellow Follows Me." I'll uh, I'll send that to you afterwards. Incredible! It all talks about. Oh, I love the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. It's No matter what, this you know, you've got this little kid that's always there, just watching and mimicking, good or bad. Whatever you do is is handed down, whether you like it or not. Uh, To switch gears for a sec, you you always talk about bigger, faster, stronger. How do you balance that hunger with enjoying happiness in the present?
0: Yeah, look, I think that's uh, like anything. I think happiness is like um, presence, which is like health. It's a practice. You know, you don't don't just get happy by accident. You don't just get healthy by accident. Uh, Some people are naturally wired that way maybe, but, um, you know, I think happiness is a is something that everybody needs to work on, you know, with a level of consciousness to be aware of how much they're experiencing in their life. And I'm no different to anybody else, you know. I get obsessed with performance, with business, you know, with everything moving so quickly that sometimes, you know, I do forget to 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 slow down and and enjoy more. And that's where the last few months have been quite quite special for me. You know, I've I've now um, entered a new relationship for the first time. Three and a half years, almost four years, and I've been spending more time in the family environment and spending more time, you know, bathing in uh, in a sea of happiness that is inspired by a different value to business at a higher level. Because I've, you know, I always bathe in the family value with my son, but to be putting myself back into the context of, um, you know, a a family unit, it's, um, yeah, it's 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 brought an enormous amount of happiness for me and awareness to the importance of managing that balance moving forward. Yeah, sure.
1: What, what about when COVID started? You were incredible with how well you were able to connect the dots around what was coming. I think better than anyone that I've ever spoken to or anyone I've ever, I've ever met. How were you able to read the tea leaves around what was going on with COVID? And how did you change your business uh, as it was all unfolding? I remember back with just the uncertainty. People might forget it now, but it was changing like crazy from a public perspective. Mm. It seemed like no one had any idea what was going on.
0: Yeah, look, I um, I, I guess you could say you know, one part luck, one part smarts, one part, one part timing. <laughs> um, I'm someone that's a natural. I naturally gather information every day. Um, I use a range of different sources, and I'm, and I'm often looking at a range of different data depends, depending on what's on my windscreen at the time, what's on my dashboard, mm-hmm. um, and somehow Corona got on my dashboard on January seventh, and when I read it. I remember thinking, this is interesting. And I started going through and I remember just doing a little bit of research and going, fuck, there's something going on here. And within minutes, I was like, shit, there's something going on here. Um, but then the very next day, I think it was January 8th, I jumped back on and it was media silence. Mm. And I remember going, fuck, that's a bit strange. Like Yesterday, there was this outbreak you know, in, uh, in, in China and today, there's no talk of it at all. And it was maybe only an, I don't know, 24-hour blackout. But then the next day, it was back in the news again. And I just, I couldn't shake it. And so, every day, I I was just gathering data. And, you know, so when the China outbreak happened, I was way across it, you know, early January when Spain, yeah. uh, Italy, uh, and France were, were were going up. I was way on it. Like, I ordered a first set of uh, protective gear for the team on January 18th. We created our first bio-threat response plan in the team on January, with the team on January 24th. Um, because we had a 13-city a tour that was scheduled for February where I was going to be on 30 planes in 30 days um, and I wanted to make sure that myself and the team were, prop- were protected. And so there was a lot of, you know, people say, oh, it was a good intuition. It was just really good foresight mm-hmm. and good in- and combined with solid intuition and just looking at the data points. And, you know, I was, I was saying this in early January. I was, like, I was literally saying, and I've got this on film, well, why the fuck is no one talking about this? This mm-hmm. COVID thing has taken off. No one's talking about this. China... Like it was, I think, 27th of, of, of um, January, I was saying China's been shut down for three, four weeks now. No one's fucking talking about this. Everyone's shipping out of China. No one's shipping. No one's talking about this. What's going on? And it's, it's been a, a culmination of that. And when it hit, you know, I, I was finally like, well, finally, someone's fucking paying attention because I've been, I've been talking about this, you know, I think at that point, I've been talking about it for seven weeks um, heavily. And I'm talking to my clients and I'm telling my clients and, you know, and as a result, we, uh, we were very well insulated. And, and, because, and it's so funny because when I first went to my team and said, oh, this event will get canceled, they were fighting. They go, no, it won't get canceled. It won't get canceled. And not only did that event get canceled, we ended up shutting down the event that we were just about to go into. Like two weeks later, we shut it down halfway through. And I had team members arguing with me saying, no, that's not going to happen. It will never happen. That's impossible. And I was right. like, oh, it's not, a, it's impossible. It's going to fucking happen and everyone needs to get their head around it now. And so, so- for me...
1: I was yeah, going to say, yeah, was, for some context around that, that was six weeks. When you ordered all that protective equipment, that was six weeks before the US stopped the first flights from Europe, I believe, from Emory. And it was also around yep. the same time that there were, I think it was Nancy Pelosi who was telling people, come down, you know, come down to Chinatown in, in San Francisco where we're open for business, come outside, there's nothing wrong. To make that call six weeks before the US, you know, obviously receiving a hell of a lot of flights from China every single day uh, is, mm. is incredible.
0: Yeah. And it, and it supported us well. And you know, it's, it's kind of birthed a new division in the company. We now have, um, uh, I guess you could say, a small intelligence division in the company now that just gathers data. Um, and it it's gathers data at whatever we pointed at. Um, and you know, it's very helpful. And um, yeah, we're going to explore that moving forward.
1: Yeah, I love it. Uh, one last question before we get into some good stuff in the in the win the day rocket round, with some quick answers. What about the power of, of relationships? I see a lot of people, they want these instant monetization strategies. They want these, these magic bullets. Yet for me, and I, I suspect for you too, relationships have been by far the most valuable um, asset and the most valuable weapon in your arsenal. How have relationships played a role in the success that you have today?
0: Oh, massively. I think if you look at any because <clears throat> a relationship is a dynamic that's also on a spectrum, and you know we're all involved in them. It just depends on what types of relationships you know, relationship with you know our our family, our intimate family, our, our team, our audience, um, our clients. and so, as someone who is a mad, massive introvert, it's been a real journey <laughs> because, you know, I wanted to be like, okay, I just want to help people and make money, but I don't want to talk to anybody. That's <laughs> so like, not going to play out. But that's interesting because I see that playing out in a lot of clients that I've worked with over the decades where they go, well, I'm not really a people person. I'm like, well, neither was I. I had to fucking learn, you know, because if you want to do anything well, you're going to require a team to do so, you know, and, you know, if we're going to have a team, there's going to be relationship dynamics at play. and fundamentally what will determine the performance of those dynamics will, the, will be your communication strategy and how well you communicate will ultimately determine the depths and the, and the level of, you know, relation or trust or connection that you have that will ultimately determine the quality of the collaboration. Yeah, love it. And whether that collaboration is your wife, and again, that might sound cold, but that's the reality. It's an intimate collaboration, whether it's collaboration with your kid when you're, when you're parenting or collaboration with your team member when you're trying to lead. Um, you know, we're all constantly, and that's what we're built to do. By the way, as humans, we're built to collaborate, um, but just not a lot of us really got, the, you know, necessarily the best instruction on how to do that effectively.
1: It's interesting. Uh, Keith Ferrazzi, on recently, the number one New York Times best-selling author of Never Eat Alone, and he's talking about the next partner that he wants to have, like the next romantic partner, is someone who will be his his partner, not just in on the relationship side, but really someone who he uses the term co-elevation, someone where you both really lift each other higher. And I mean, mm-hmm. the relationship, especially when you bring kids into it, they see so much, they observe so much around the relationship that you have with your partner or your ex-partner. And obviously, it's a, a big uh, thing that's on your mind as you're talking about around Noah making sure that your relationship with his mum is, is something that um, oh. he admires and respects.
0: And that's, and that's the thing as parents we need to take a, a, we need to take a pill and take a step back and start to really become aware because you know a lot of parents look at their kids' relationship dynamics and they go well i don't know where that comes from and i 'll telling you right now and there's a very high probability it comes from you mm. um, you know whenever Cesar <coughs> Milan works with a, a, a dog he goes, you know I rehabilitate the dog and I train the human and it's the same you know it's the same with with, with, with <laughs> With, uh, with kids and parents, you know, we've got to be very careful of the blueprints that we demonstrate because they ultimately become the foundational, you know, um, operating systems of how they relate in different contexts. And, you know, one of those being, you know, at an intimate level and, you know, one of the biggest fallacies that we, we tell our kids that is if someone is mean to you, that means they like you. And, you know, it's like, what does that tell a, a six-year-old girl or a six-year-old boy? Oh, that boy's bullying me. Oh, he, he doesn't not like you. Actually, that's how he, he, he likes you. He just doesn't know how to tell you. Mm. And so now we start building this this whole model of, you know, well, people treat you poorly. That's, that means that they love you. Or they start looking at the dynamics that they have with their mum or their dad and that communication strategy and then don't understand why that communication strategy keeps playing out in their intimate lives, mm. you know, when they move forward. Yeah. Yeah. As, as parents, we have a lot to answer for, but we also have a lot to be responsible for and a lot to be grateful for if we're conscious of what we demonstrate. All engine running. off. We have a lift off.
1: Let's now move into win the day rocket round. So 10 questions for some, you know, for some quickish answers here, Kerwin. You are ready?
0: Can I win a car? Uh,
1: yes, we will see. We will see. <laughs> I was going to send you one, but they're not allowing exports out of America at the moment.
0: <laughs> Tesla when you're ready.
1: <laughs> Consider it done. Uh, I saw Elon's actually the fifth richest person in the world now. His company, Tesla, is worth, moving up. Yeah, worth more than four GM, Ferrari uh, combined, which is pretty, uh, wow. pretty amazing. He's certainly getting it done. Uh, number one, what, what quote inspires you the most? I, I'd say just get it done, but the, the one that
0: probably epitomizes that the best is Do or Do Not, There Is No Try. You know, it's a classic by Yoda.
1: Yeah, love it. Uh, morning coffee or evening wine? Neither. What's one bit of advice you would give your 18 year old self?
0: You're going to fuck it up. It's okay.
1: What book do you gift the most?
0: Ooh, oh gosh. Oh, that's a doof. I'd probably say Extreme Ownership. Jocko Willink. Yeah, great book.
1: Was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower?
0: Yeah, insecurity. Insecurity became my vulnerability and that became a superpower.
1: Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure?
0: It's important. It's required. It's essential. And the more consciously you do it, the less you have to do it long-term.
1: Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be?
0: My grandfather, actually. Yeah, never met him.
1: Mm. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Oof, what tool or resource? Yeah. yeah, look, my phone.
0: Honestly, I fucking hate the thing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, but I, yeah, I, I can't live without it. It's, yeah, it's, it's the, almost a part of me.
1: The powerful little things there, unfortunately. Uh, number nine, I'm keen to hear your answer to this one. Share one thing on your bucket list.
0: Oof, one thing on my bucket list, oh God, I've always always wanted to do a, uh, a trip of Austria and Europe and just to see some of the, 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 the castles and the lakes and the, yeah, I've got this picturesque picture in my head of, of, of these, these settings in Austria and Germany and, uh, and I'd love to go and check it out. Fantastic. anything the only thing I can really think of. Because I've I've, 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 someone else asked me this question the other day, and I was like, fuck, I've done everything I want to do. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's, there's certain parts of Europe that I haven't gone to that, you know, I'd hope to be able to get to at some point.
1: And out of space, the final frontier, maybe one day.
0: Oh, fuck. I didn't know that was on the table. Like that's happening. (laughs) That's, That's done. My son and I talk about that on a regular basis. Going to space.
1: I should mention here as well. The first time I walked into your office in Sydney, mate, so impressive. I've told so many people about that. I remember taking a photo on my phone, just seeing that whole, um, you know, the whole layout of the the cityscape. Are you able to quickly just describe that for people who haven't seen it or haven't been there?
0: Yeah, it's it's an uh, it's an entire wall mural <coughs> that just has um, yeah embodies who we are. So it has our purpose up there, which is helping helping business owners succeed. Um, it has our mission up there. Which is to become the most exclusive network and tribe of elite and conscious business people, and um, it has all of our values—the the 13 values uh, that we that we have in the company—and and a little bit of a description on them. But it's all set within a mural of what inspires me, and so we've got SpaceX there, we've got um, uh, we've got Stark, we've got uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's kind of cool. That's a picture of myself and my son and. Is there's, there's a lot in it. Let's just put it that way. It's one of those pictures that actually says a thousand words. Mm. Yeah.
1: One of the things I love about you, mate, is a lot of people talk about, but you know, every part of you, you know, it, it comes across, which is which is awesome. Uh, number ten. Do. Final question: What's one thing you do to win the day?
0: What's the one thing I do to win the day? I just get it done. I just, to me, when you know yourself well enough, you just know what buttons to push and. You can do anything. And it's, uh, in most cases, regardless of context, unless, you know, someone's chopped your hand off or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Or get in touch with Kerwin online. You can go to his website, kerwinray.com or connect with him on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. He's crushing it on all the socials. And also check out his awesome podcast, Unstoppable with Kerwin Ray. Kerwin, great to see you, my man. Thanks for being on the show. James, absolute pleasure. See you next time, buddy. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kerwin. He's got some incredible lessons on the power of the mind and how, with the right plan, we can achieve anything we want in life. It's also an insight into how we can convert pain from the past into being a bigger asset than we ever could imagine. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Win the Day with James Whittaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got some big episodes episodes coming up that I know you're going to love. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.